bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used as sources for our show. And uh, tonight, the selected volume will be read, not by me, but by my co-host, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I'm happy to be back as the reader. I thought it would be nice, since it's mainly been me with this uh, new format, temporary as it may be. I'm looking forward to it. And, if I may, I'd also like to thank the listeners who've been writing me about the owl. Your messages have been very helpful as we go through all of these... these changes. Are they uh, counseling you on your owl phobia? I don't know why you say that. I'm doing better. I was inside the solarium three times this week. True. Maybe a full ten feet past the door? More like fifteen. And I would have come further if it hadn't been for her weird head thing. Her... Turning to look at you? Yes. It's like something out of The Exorcist. Isn't that where the demon turns the person's head? Uh, Yes, but a full 360 degrees. Owls can only turn their heads 270 degrees, to be precise. Um, I was actually reading up on it the other day. It's because uh, their eyes actually don't rotate in the socket, so the entire head... And it's disturbing. I told one of the listeners about it, and they mentioned The Exorcist. Well, you... Get used to it. What were your friends saying about uh, dealing with your uh, uh, issues around? I don't have issues. You have every right to keep a bird if you want, and I know it's just something I'll have to get used to, but there was a suggestion that everyone seemed to get excited about. We were having a group chat, you know, and someone said, Linda, I think, that the owl needs a name. All normal pets have names, and maybe having a name would humanize it somewhat. Not that it's a human, it's a bird, of course, but it's also not some sort of demon. And they all had suggestions, right? We thought it might make a fun contest. Uh, Uh, Maybe... uh, No Harry Potter names? No, not those. Uh, Of course not. But someone suggested... uh, what, What were the others? Oh, someone suggested... Who? Who? Not sure... Uh, maybe that was Linda, uh, now too. Now it's Abbott Costello. No, I I get it. The owl sound. Who? who? Like yes. hooting. Yes. The thing is, she actually already has a name. I guess I just haven't said it out loud. I don't know if it's a name if you just think it. Strix. 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 It was uh, actually the ancient Greek name for uh, some sort of bird uh, associated with uh, evil omens and blood drinking, flesh eating, uh, probably uh, some sort of mythologized version of the owl, the actual owl, uh, the uh, Latinized 
name for the owl family is related to it, as is the Italian for uh, witch. Uh, strega actually uh, comes from Strix. Oh, good. A blood-drinking witch that brings misfortune. Well, that helps. Strix. And uh, I feel like I should apologize. We're going to record in the solarium this episode with the owl, as we talked about, but I didn't find those uh, cables. Uh, you didn't happen to... Uh, Move anything around in the basement, did you? No. Okay. Well, no, uh, of course not. Anyway, I suppose we'll start our show. Episode 106, An Irish Ghost Story. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to uh, further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two bonus episodes, and I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. As St. Patrick's Day is fast approaching, I thought it might be nice to share with you a story from the Emerald Isle. Our selection, which will be read by Mrs. Carswell, as I mentioned, uh, comes from the 1825 publication, Fairy Legends and Traditions of the South of Ireland. It's the first of three volumes of stories told by the Irish antiquarian Thomas Crofton Croker. Born in the city of Cork, Croker was uh, one of the earliest collectors of the island's folk tales, Sir Walter Scott, who similarly served the folklore of Scotland, was an admirer of Croker, uh, commenting in his notes accompanying one of his own novels that uh, Croker was little as a dwarf, keen-eyed as a hawk, and of very prepossessing manners. Apparently, Croker was indeed of diminutive stature, only four feet, ten and a half inches tall, though a bit less magical, perhaps, than the little people populating his tales. The story we'll be hearing tonight is The Headless Horseman. God speed you and a safe journey this night to you, Charlie, said the master of the little pub at Ballyhooley after his friend and good customer, Charlie Cunane who at length had turned his face homeward with the prospect of as dreary a ride and as dark a night as ever fell upon the black water along the banks of which he was about to journey. Charlie Colnane knew the country well and moreover was as bold a rider as any that ever rode a four-year-old upon a race course. 
he had gone to Fernoy in the morning, as well as for the purpose of purchasing some ingredients required for the Christmas dinner by his wife, as to gratify his own vanity by having new reins fitted to his bridle, in which he intended showing off the old mare at the approaching St. Stephen's Day hunt. Charlie did not get out of Fermoy until late, for although he was not one of your nasty particular sort of fellows in anything that related to the common occurrences of life, yet in all the appointments connected with hunting, riding, leaping, in short, in whatever was connected with the old mare, Charlie, the saddler said, was the devil to please. An illustration of this fastidiousness was afforded by his going such a distance for a custom bridle. Mallow was full 12 miles nearer Charlie's farm, which lay just three quarters of a mile behind Carrick than Fermoy. But Charlie had quarreled with all the Mallow saddlers, from hard-working and hard-drinking Tom Clancy up to Mr. Ryan, who considered himself saddler to the county, and no one could content him in all particulars but honest Michael Toomey of Fermoy, who used to assert, and who will doubt it, that he could stitch a saddle better than the Lord Lieutenant. This delay in the arrangement of the bridle did not allow Charlie Coolmane to pay so long a visit as he had first intended to his old friend and gossip, Con Buckley, of the Harp of Erin. Con, however, knew the value of time and insisted upon Charlie making good use of what he had to spare. I won't bother you waiting for water, Charlie, because I think you'll have enough of that same before you get home. So drink off your liquor, man. It's as good whiskey as ever a gentleman tasted. Charlie, it must be confessed, drank success to Con and success to the jolly harp of Erin with its head of beauty and its strings of the hair of gold and to their better acquaintance and so on from the bottom of his soul until the bottom of the bottle reminded him that Kerrig was at the bottom of the hill on the other side of Castleton and that he had got no further on his journey than the big gate of Convermore. Catching bold of his oilskin hat, therefore, whilst Con Buckley went to the cupboard for another bottle of the real stuff, he bolted from his friend's hospitality, darted to the stable, tightened his girths, and put the old mare into a canter towards home. The road from Ballyhooley to Kerrig follows pretty nearly the course of Blackwater, occasionally diverting from the river and passing through rather wild scenery. Charlie cantered gaily, regardless of the rain, which, as his friend Con had anticipated, fell in torrents. The good woman's currants and raisins were carefully packed between the folds of his cloak, which Charlie, who was proud of showing that he belonged to the Royal Mallow Light Horse Volunteers, always strapped to the saddle before him and took care never to destroy the military effect of putting it on. Notwithstanding that the visit to the jolly harp of Erin had a little increased the natural complacency of his mind, the drenching of the new rains began to disturb him, and then followed a train of even more anxious thoughts than even were occasioned by any true competition on St. Stephen's Day. 
in an hour of good fellowship, when his heart was warm and his head not overcool, Charlie had backed the old mare against Mr. Jeffson's Bay Philly Desdemona for a neat hundred, and he now felt sore misgivings as to the prudence of the match. He found himself humming a doleful tune, but stopped as the old mare had reduced her canter to a trot at the bottom of Greenfield's Hill. Charlie's eye fell on the old walls that belonged in former times to the Templars, but the silent gloom of the ruin was broken only by the heavy rain which splashed and pattered on the gravestones. He then looked up to the sky to see if there was, among the clouds, any hopes for mercy on his new reigns, and no sooner were his eyes lowered than his attention was arrested by an object so extraordinary as almost led him to doubt the evidence of his senses. The head, apparently, of a white horse with short, cropped ears, large, open nostrils, and immense eyes seemed rapidly to follow him. No connection with body, legs, or rider could possibly be traced. The head advanced. Charlie's old mare, too, was moved at this unnatural sight and, snorting violently, increased her trot up the hill. The head moved forward and passed on, Charlie pursuing it with astonished gaze and wondering by what means and for what purpose this detached head thus proceeded through the air did not perceive the corresponding body until he was suddenly startled by finding it close at his side. Charlie turned to examine what was thus so sociably jogging on with him when a most astounding apparition presented itself to his view. A figure whose height he estimated to be at least eight feet was seated on the body and legs of a white horse full 18 hands and a half high. In this measurement, Charlie could not be mistaken for his own mare was exactly 15 hands and the body that thus jogged alongside he could at once determine was at least three hands and a half higher. After the first feeling of astonishment passed, the attention of Charlie, being a keen sportsman, was naturally directed to this extraordinary body, and having examined it with the eye of a connoisseur, he proceeded to study the figure so unusually mounted, who had hitherto remained perfectly mute. Wishing to see whether his companion's silence proceeded from bad temper, want of conversational powers, or from a distaste to water, and the fear that the opening of his mouth might subject him to have it filled by the rain, which was then drifting in violent gusts, Charlie endeavoured to catch a sight of his companion's face in order to form an opinion on that point. But his vision failed in carrying him further than the top of the collar of the figure's coat, which was a scarlet single-breasted hunting frog, having a waist of a very old-fashioned cut reaching to the saddle with two huge shining buttons at about a yard's distance behind. I ought to see further than this too, thought Charlie, unless it is Khan's whiskey that has blinded me entirely. However, 
see further he could not, and after straining his eyes for a considerable time to no purpose, he exclaimed with pure vexation, By the big bridge of Mallow, it is no head at all he has. Look again, Charlie Culmain, said a hoarse voice that seemed to proceed from under the right arm of the figure. Charlie did look again, and now in the proper place. For he clearly saw, under the aforesaid right arm, that head from which the voice had proceeded, and such a head no mortal had ever saw before. It looked like a large cheese, hung up to dry. No speck of color enlivened the ashy paleness of the depressed features. The skin lay stretched over the unearthly surface almost like the parchment head of a drum. Two fiery eyes of prodigious circumference, with a strange and irregular motion, flashed like meteors upon Charlie, and to complete all, a mouth reached from either extremity of two ears, which peeped forth from under a profusion of matted locks of lustrous blackness. This head, which the figure had evidently hitherto concealed from Charlie's eyes, now burst upon his view in all its hideousness. Charlie, although a lad of proverbial courage in the county of Cork, yet could not but feel his nerves a little shaken by this unexpected visit from the headless horseman, whom he considered his fellow traveler must be. The cropped-eared head of the gigantic horse moved steadily forward, always keeping from six to eight yards in advance. The horseman, unaided by whip or spur, and disdaining the use of stirrups, which dangled uselessly from the saddle, followed at a trot by Charlie's side, his hideous head now lost behind the lapel of his coat, now starting forth in all its horror, as the motion of the horse caused his arm to move to and fro. The ground shook under the weight of its supernatural burden, and the water in the pools became agitated into waves as he trotted by them. On they went, heads without bodies and bodies without heads. The deadly silence of night was broken only by the fearful clattering of hooves and the distant sound of thunder which rumbled above the old cairns of Barganor Hill. Charlie, who was naturally a merry-hearted and rather talkative fellow, had hitherto felt tongue-tied by apprehension. But finding his companion showed no evil disposition towards him, and having become somewhat more reconciled to the monstrous dimensions of the horseman and his headless steed, plucked up all his courage, and thus addressed the stranger. Why then, your honor rides mightily well without the stirrups. <coughs> growled the head from under the horseman's right arm. Tis not an over-civil answer, thought Charlie, but no matter. He was taught in one of them riding houses, maybe, and thinks nothing at all about bumping his leather breeches at the rate of ten miles an hour. I'll try him on the other tack. That's a fine great coat of your honors. 
although tis a little too long in the waist for the present cut. <clears throat> Growled again the head. This response came as a terrible thump in the face to poor Charlie, who was fairly bothered to know what subject he could start that would prove more agreeable. Tis a sensible head, thought Charlie, although an ugly one, which was plain enough the man does not like flattery. A third attempt, however, Charlie was determined to make, and having failed on his observations as to the riding and the coat of his fellow traveller, thought he would just drop a trifling allusion to the wonderful headless horse that was jogging on so sociably beside his old mare. And as Charlie was considered to be very knowing in horses, besides being a full private in the Royal Mallow Light Horse Volunteers, he felt rather confident as to the result of his third attempt. To be sure, that's a brave horse your honor rides, recommenced the persevering Charlie. So say you with your own ugly mouth, growled the head. Charlie, though not much flattered by the compliment, nevertheless chuckled at his success in obtaining an answer, and thus continued, Maybe your honor would be chasing after the head come free from the steed you ride. Would you try me, Charlie? Said the rider's head with an inexpressible look of ghastly delight. That's what I'd do, responded Charlie. Only, I'm afraid the night being so dark of laming my old mare. This was true enough, though Charlie Colnane was known for the delight he took in most any fox chase, steeplechase, or equestrian challenge. The dark and uncanny circumstance of the night caused his courage to waver. Will you take my word? Said the man who carried his head so snugly under his right arm. For the safety of your mare. Done, said Charlie. And away they started, helter-skelter over every stone, ditch, and wall. The old mare never went in such a style, even in broad daylight, and Charlie had just gained on his companion, when the hollow voice called out, Charlie Coulbane! Charlie! Man, stop for your life! Stop! Charlie pulled up hard. Aye, said he. You may beat me by the horse head, because it always goes so much before you. But if the bet was neck and neck, I'd pull out the victor. It appeared as if the stranger was well aware of what was passing in Charlie's mind, for he suddenly broke out quite loquacious. Charlie Coulmane, says he, you have a stout soul in you and are every inch of a good rider. I've tried you and ought to know, and that's the sort of man for my money. A hundred years it is since my horse and I broke our necks at the bottom of Glanmore Hill. Since that day, I have been trying to get a man that dared to ride with me and never found one. Keep as you have always done at the tail of the hounds. Never fear a ditch, nor turn away from a stone wall, and the headless horseman will never desert you, nor the old mare. 
Charlie, in amazement, looked towards the stranger's right arm for the purpose of seeing in his face whether or not he was in earnest. But behold, the head was snugly lodged in the huge pocket of the horseman's scarlet hunting coat. The horse's head had ascended perpendicularly above them, and his extraordinary companion, rising quickly to the clouds, vanished from the astonished gaze of Charlie Poulain. Charlie, as may be supposed, was lost in wonder, delight, and perplexity. The pelting rain, the wife's pudding, the new bridle, even the match against the Squire Jeffson, all were forgotten. Nothing could he think of, nothing could he talk of, but the headless horseman. He told it directly that he got home to Judy. He told it the following morning to all the neighbors, and he told each and every rider of the hunt on St. Stephen's Day. But what provoked him after all the pains he took in describing the head, the horse, and the man, was that one and all attributed the creation of the headless horseman to his friend Con Buckley's whiskey. This, however, should be told that Charlie's old mare beat Mr. Jeffson's bay filly Desdemona, and Charlie pocketed his cool hundred. And if he didn't win by means of the headless horseman, I'm sure I don't know any other reason for his doing so. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As uh, I promised at the top of the show, I'd like to provide a bit more on the rewards of joining Bone and Sickle via Patreon. A monthly pledge of $2 provides you access to hundreds of blog posts spanning the show's entire run. Donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you not one, but two short bonus episodes. Our other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bonusical candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. And I'd uh, like to thank a few recent patrons, Ben Van Sickle, uh, no relation, uh, Marcy Cantor, and uh, a uh, wish-to-remain-anonymous donor. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening, and happy St. Patty's Day.